Well, hello everybody and welcome to The Extras. My name is Sam. And I'm Jack. And it's good to be with you again this week for another round of The Extras as we tackle your questions uh, from church on Sunday and a uh, big day on Sunday. Jack, thanks for bringing God's word to us. You, My pleasure. You were... Uh, Bring us through some more parables from Matthew 13. That's um, right, yeah. Just for those of us who are just coming back up to speed, middle of the week, uh, what were some of the things we were looking at in Matthew 13 on, on Sunday at church? Yeah, so the big picture behind the whole of Matthew chapter 13 is the opposition that we see rising against Jesus by this point in Matthew's gospel. We saw how Jesus is answering that, that crisis, if you like, with these parables. You know, why aren't more people believing in Jesus if he mm. is such a you know, powerful, good guy, if he's really the king? Jesus tells the parable of the weeds, which talks about how in the, in the world there are wheat and there are weeds. There are going to be Jesus' people and the devil's people. And Jesus points to the harvest at the end of the age when he will finally uh, weed out all the opposition from his kingdom. Yeah. It's just not going to happen yet. Sure. And we, he also gives us the parables of the, the mustard seed, which turns into the huge tree and yep. the little bit of yeast that goes through the whole dough. And the point there is even when things look like they're really struggling against the opposition now, the, the little thing is going to get huge and nothing's yeah, going to okay. stop Jesus' kingdom having an enormous impact. So you've sort of got two things going on there. On the one hand, I uh, recognise that there, there are always going to be these two types of people, but don't be discouraged because it, um, the kingdom is going to be huge. Yeah, that's right. So in the face of that, patience and confidence were the two things I think this calls yeah. us to. Nice. Okay. Uh, well, now we've got 10 questions, a nice, neat round 10 uh, Great round from, number. from Sunday. So that, that's good. Uh, and we'll, we'll have a go at uh, tackling a few of these. So uh, be good if you're listening along to have your Bible open. We're in Matthew 13, uh, picking it up from verse 43. We're in that section there. Uh, so uh, let's start with some questions on the parables themselves. Um, so we've been doing this for a couple of weeks, thinking about parables now. And, and one of the ideas that's kept coming up both last week, this week, is the idea that parables are designed to obscure yeah. um, to cloud um, uh, except for those that Jesus gives the key to the, the secrets of the kingdom from from last week's mm. passage um, someone's sending the question look what about the parables where we're not given the explanation like in um, the parable of the sower here in the parable of the weeds Jesus does let the disciples in but there are some aren't there where where Jesus doesn't give an actual explanation are we just in the dark forever on those it's a really good question and I'd totally love it and relate to it because when I came to this passage start working through it myself I had the same question I was like oh fantastic you know what does the parable of weeds means well Jesus tells me that's great you know there's there's kind of the sermon written you know beautiful like, <laughs> yeah nice and then like ah oh, but then there's these ones in the middle where you know he's just told me that parables are hard to understand and then he's given these two without any explanation you're like yeah alright am I stuck yeah I totally get the question yeah um, I think there's, there's two kind of sets of things I want to say if you like there's, there's the first part of the answer is understanding what God is doing in revealing the truth of his kingdom to his disciples. Yep. It's kind of a big picture spiritual thing going on. And then there's also the second set, which is what's actually going on in the text of Matthew that helps us to get the parable. Yep. So on the first thing, back in the first half of chapter 13, uh, when Jesus says the parables are hard to understand, what he's talking about there is they're hard for the crowd to understand. Yes. So verse 13, he says, this is why I speak to the crowd in parables, so that those seeing they will not see and the hearing they won't understand. But to his disciples, he says, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. Mm. And as Jesus is doing his ministry and teaching his disciples, he is teaching them about the kingdom. Mm. So Jesus' disciples, they've been given the interpretive grid to understand what Jesus is saying. And that's not from themselves. Like, that's something that comes from God. Like, yeah. I think the picture that Matthew gives us of how God brings someone to understand Jesus and his kingdom is it comes from God. And I think of um, Matthew chapter 16 
when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, Matthew 16, verse 17, yeah. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The only way that Peter was able to come to this recognition that Jesus is the Messiah is because God opened his eyes. Mm. And that's true not just for Peter, but, but really for all who come to faith in God, isn't it? It really is the work of God through the Spirit to open our eyes to get the gospel and to understand what Jesus is on about. That's right. So that means if you are a disciple of Jesus, then the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you and God has opened your eyes to understand his kingdom. Yep. And so that means I think we should be optimistic as we mm. come to the parables that we can understand what they mean, yep. even though they are tricky. Yeah. And so that brings us to the second set of things. Well, thinking about Matthew's gospel, is this just, you know, the parable of the mustard seed is just this little enigma that's kind of plonked in the middle and we have no idea what it means. I don't think that's the case. Um, partly because it's not just this isolated saying. It comes to us in the context of the Bible as the whole. Mm. It comes to us in the context of Matthew's gospel as a whole. So we have this big picture against which to understand. Yep. You know, we understand what the kingdom of heaven is, not just from this parable, but from the whole gospel. So we've already got kind of some clues there. Mm. Even in this passage, uh, part of the structure of this passage is that there's like a sandwiching thing going on because it starts with the parable of the weeds and then you have the other parables and then you have the explanation of the weeds afterwards. So yeah. the other parables are like sandwiched in the middle. Yeah. And often in the Gospels, there's this kind of sandwiching device that tells you you're meant to take this whole set of things together. Sure. Which is why we tackled this passage as a whole on Sunday because I think they are related, that the weeds is about the the kind of end of opposition at the end of the age, whereas the mustard seed in the yeast is about the growth of the kingdom until that day. So that kind of gives us the context for mm -hmm. it. So the context itself helps us to understand the parables that we don't even have an explanation for. That's right. So it doesn't, he may not spell it out like this is what everything means, but we have yeah. enough context that we can, in, you know, with the Spirit's help who opens the secrets of the kingdom to us, we can understand, I think, what Jesus is saying. We've got to wrestle with it. Like there's some challenges, but yes. we can be optimistic. Yep. That's great. Okay. Uh, getting into the parable itself a, a little bit further. Um, now, um, one of the questions someone sent in is, in the parable, you've got weeds and wheat growing next to each other. And the, the reason Jesus says that we don't pull out the weeds now uh, is because it might uproot the wheat. Uh, yeah. And so the question has come in, how does that happen? Can you give us an example? Yeah, another really good question. And to be honest, I think this is the question I wrestled most with as I prepared to teach on this passage. Okay. And if I can step it back, maybe, sorry, I take a step back from the question. Like a prior question is, is verse 29 talking about something that is uh, this, this kind of greater spiritual point coming out of the parable? Or is it just a detail in the story? And I, I made that point on Sunday as well. Like yeah. something like the sleeping in verse 25, like, the, you know, the, the wheat was, you know, the servants were sleeping. Is that saying God's people are sleeping on the job? Like, I don't think that's the point. Mm. That's just like this little incidental detail sure, of the story. it's a detail in the story. Yeah. So is verse 29 a detail in the story or is it making a bigger point? Mm. I think that's a really good question. I wrestled with it a lot. Uh, I've come to the, the point of saying I think that it's not saying something of a particular spiritual significance. So I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying, oh, you know, the wheat, the good people could be uprooted early. Or like, I think mm. that he's saying... There's, there's, there's this kind of, it's, you know, it's part of the agricultural explanation of the story. Like you can't pull the, you know, the, the roots of the weeds are all wrapped around and entangled under the ground yep. around the roots of the wheat. Like yep. just agriculturally, you can't just pick and choose. Like you've got to rip it all up at once. Yeah. So wait for the harvest time yeah. seems, because you don't want to, we, we want to wait for the fullness of the crop to come in, in the agricultural sense. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, th like, that's what I think it's saying. Mm. I think there is a possibility that there is a spiritual meaning. So... If Jesus is saying, look, don't uproot the weeds because you might uproot the weed. If that is a spiritual thing, I think what he's getting at is saying, we still want to give the wheat time to grow. 
Like if we cut it short now, we might eradicate the weeds yet, but we still want to see the good side of things grow. We want to see the, you know, we want to see God's people growing. And, you know, if it's what it means, I think it's that kind of thing. Like yeah. have patience because we still need to see God's people grow and develop and, which, and bear fruit, that kind of thing. Which kind of works with the other parable that's sandwiched in here, which is the parable of the mustard seed, which starts small but needs time to become the great glorious tree that the birds come and nest in and so there's a sense in which time and, and waiting for it to get to its end point is, is sort of tied up with the images here anyway yeah yeah. like so I think that's possible it's, yeah like I, I'm not convinced that that's what Matthew is saying because and I think in the end the kind of the nail in the coffin for that for me is that Jesus doesn't say that like yeah. as he explains the parable he doesn't make that point yes so I feel like he would be you know if, if he meant that point but doesn't say it as he gives the explanations it feels like it'd be weird for him to leave it out mm. so it's just about possible like I think the broader point is like I mean that whole idea is theologically true like God is you know patient giving people Absolutely. time to repent yeah. time for the wheat to grow like that is yeah. that's a theologically true observation from the rest of scripture but does that mean that what that's what Jesus has to be saying here I don't yes. think it necessarily does. Like, I think, right. I think you could find all sorts of theologically true things to read into the parables, mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean what, that that's what this section of Scripture is saying. That's true from elsewhere, but I just don't think that's the thing that Jesus has sure. on view right here. Yeah, okay. Yep, helpful. All right. Uh, now, uh, moving on, um, in the parable there are these weeds and the wheat, um, and if it is, as you said uh, on Sunday, that, that you know the, the wheat are kind of God's people and the weeds are everyone else, then does that mean that anyone who is not under God's rule is under Satan's rule? Uh, you only have two options, even if you don't believe in God. Uh, yes, I think. Short answer, yes, I think that is right. There are only two options. You are either one of Jesus' people or you are under Satan's rule. Mm. I think you see that even more clearly in a passage you looked at a couple of weeks ago. So when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about the, the blasphemy of the Spirit, all of that, um, yes. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Yeah. He paints it crystal clear. And that's in the context of talking about the work of the devil and why Jesus is driving out demons. Like Jesus gives us this sense that mm. history is this great cosmic battle between Jesus and the devil. And all of us are on a side of that battle there's no yeah. middle ground like there's no sitting on the fence jesus says if you are not with me yeah. you're against me and i guess the question behind that is well but like really like i get that you know there are some people who are super hostile to jesus and make it clear they're against him but you know what about my friend who's just like just doesn't really care that much and you know he's a pretty nice person and like you know are they really like in the under the rule of satan is that yeah is that right and yeah. i think what jesus is saying is yes yeah even those people who, you know, we think that are okay, Jesus says, no, like there's this really clear line in the sand. If you are not, if, you, if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not bowing before him as the king, however, however, sorry, however nice you might look on the outside to us, according to our worldly categories, the reality mm. is you are a sinner in rebellion against God's king and you are facing judgment for that. That's right. And I, and I think part of that means that we need to start looking at the world through God's lenses and, mm. and seeing the world as God sees it rather than seeing it perhaps as we might want to see it or even because I think sometimes we think oh well they're very nice they couldn't clearly they couldn't be an enemy of God but I, that's just not the way that God talks about these things is it and, yeah. and I think we need to bring our thinking into line with God's uh, rather than thinking what a terrible God how, how could he how could God not like that person I really like yeah you know? totally uh, yeah I mean this brings urgency like we, we you know we want to kind of just you know be comfortable like yeah you know most people are fine like you know but the the gospel mm. brings us this radical urgency that no like people yeah. by nature we are rebels who are 
trying to overthrow the power of God the King and we're going to face judgment for that. But Jesus has come to save us from that and all of that is like, yes, this demands a decision and we need to see people the way God sees them. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, On a similar vein, uh, what about weeds within the church? Um, Someone's asking. Or or is that a misapplication of this parable? The idea of the intertwined roots, it seems to kind of paint this insidious picture of the weeds being kind of deeply mixed into the crop, which perhaps is the church. Um, is Is that a right reading of the text, that this is actually a picture of the church more than the... Yeah. This is another really good question. And it's been quite a big one throughout church history. So this passage has played a big role in how Christians have thought about the church so there's, a, there's this guy, one of the early church fathers, um, Augustine, the Bishop yeah. of Hippo, who's the great theologian of the early church. He went to this passage to argue that the church, is, as we see it here on earth, we should expect it to be a mixture of mm. people who are saved and people who are not. Um, and, you know, he was wrestling with this whole movement of people who wanted to, you know, cleanse the church and purify it. And like, no, the church should be this pure and holy thing. And anyone who's not a believer should be passed out. And Augustine was saying, no, like, it's, it's going to be a mix. Yep. Yep. And I think that is true. I don't think it's what Jesus is saying in this parable in the first instance, because what he says is that the field is the world. That's right. If he meant the church, he could have said the field, the field is, is the church. The church yeah. But he says the field is the world. This is mm. about the two kinds of people that exist in the world. Yes. Now, that said, our church is made up of people who sure. are from our world. So That's right. you know, as, a, as an inference, like, yes, the fact that the world is made of these two kinds of people, I think means yes. that you can see how that would be reflected in the church. So... I think everything that Augustine said in the end is not wrong. Um, mm. It's not the primary meaning of the, the parable. Yep. It is, a, a, yeah, I think we can go on to talk about, yeah, how do we see the, the reality that there are two types of people, two types of people even within the, the church mm. as we know it? Yeah, so, I mean, part of that plays into, and a lot of that is the, the um, sort of the beginning point of a lot of the discussion around the visible church and the invisible church. You know, you see people gather, you know, here at church. Um, not all of them are part of what we call the invisible church, you know, those who actually belong to God. Yeah. Um, and, and Augustine would, would say this is a key passage for thinking about that, whereas I think what you're saying, Jack, is that more so this is just a way of thinking about humanity in the world, which by deduction will be true in the church, but that's not so much the, the point of Matthew 13. Yeah, I think if you look at Matthew 13 and you jump straight to thinking about the mm. church, I yeah. think you've missed the broader scope of what Jesus is saying. But this is a whole of humanity thing yeah. that we're talking about. How do here. I think about the world I live in? And, and, the, and again, that gives us urgency, doesn't it, to, mm. to, uh, to preach the kingdom to this, to this world. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, great. Uh, given, you know, we've just been talking about urgency, what then is the place of evangelism when it seems that, at least from this parable, that there are two types of plant from the start? You know, can weed somehow transform into crop? Yeah, another really helpful question here. Mm. Um, a few things to say. I think the first is, again, we got to... This is always the case with parables. Um, We've we got to understand what, what is Jesus saying here. He's not saying everything. Like, this is one passage of Scripture which isn't trying to say everything that the Bible teaches. So evangelism is important. I'm not sure it's the thing that Jesus is talking about primarily in this parable. Okay. So I don't think Jesus is so much calling us to say like, oh, you know, are you a weed or are you a wheat? Yes. I think what he's giving us is this broader picture. He's saying, in general, you look at the world, there's these two kinds of people. There will yep. be wheat in the world. There'll be weeds in the world. They're going to endure in the world until the harvest. He's giving us this kind of great divide between mm. these two parts of humanity, if you like. Yep. And from the God's eye view of the world, like we'll look back and say, yeah, God will be able to say, look, there were the, the people of Jesus, there were the sons of the devil, and yep. here is where the judgment happened. But I think what this parable doesn't do is kind of give us the 
criteria to look at individuals and say, ah, you are definitely mm. a weed. Like you were, mm. you were sown by Satan. That's, you know, that's, that's your destiny. That's what <laughs> yep. you've been predestined for. Like, yes. I think that's just, that's bringing a question to the parable, which it just doesn't really answer. Sure. Yeah. I think the parables as a whole are concerned with that kind of question. And Matthew 13, you know, when we take it kind of chunk by chunk, so we're not trying to preach the whole thing because there's too much for just one Sunday, we risk missing the connections. Yeah. But the parable of the sower, which we saw last time, kind of does lead more towards this yes. kind of thinking. Like, you know, the parable of the sower is all about we scattering scatter the word the seed, and the yeah. scattering of the word will have different responses and we can see that some people are going to respond and some won't, but we keep scattering the word because we trust that it will bear fruit in some. So yeah, in the context of the parables of the mm-hmm. whole, we're on about scattering the word. We want to see people respond to the word and become yep. good crop. And yep. that's really helpful, isn't it? So we really do need to keep reading that broader broader context of, of, of the whole of the chapter 13, but also just of Matthew, um, and see that here Jesus almost sort of like, it's quite um, uh, like one by one by one, he's giving you a whole bunch of different in, uh, images of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And mm. he goes, on this front, it's like this, and on this front, it's like that, and then it's like this. And we're just doing one of those ideas per week, yeah. uh, which can make it sound like we're, we're just saying this is what it's all about. But actually there's more more to be said in, in, even in the verses immediately around this. Yeah, we get these different facets each time. It's yeah. like lots of different looks into the same thing. So yeah, yep. we're not trying to say everything every time. Yep, yep. Okay, excellent. Um, okay, uh, now uh, one of the things that this parable raises for us is, is the doctrine of hell, yeah. uh, which you did speak about on, on Sunday. Mm. Um Somebody's texted in and said, look, I've heard critics say that Jesus didn't really believe in the devil or hell and that really what he was doing was just using those terms because it was a common belief of the time and he's just kind of trying to connect with people using images uh, that they recognise. Do you want to comment on that that, that idea? Is this passage lining up with that or would, would, would this passage refute that idea? I think this passage would refute that idea, as would many passages in Matthew and the Gospels as a whole. Yeah. Um, like, I'm, I'm keen to engage with this. Like, I don't want to dismiss this out of hand. Sure, like, you, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, yeah, look, you know, Jesus talks about hell. Like, I guess this question's getting at, yeah, but, like, why is he talking about hell? Is that just, you know, the particular thing that these people believed in? You know, mm. the Jews had this very primitive and, you know, yeah. really monstrous idea that God would judge people and Jesus was speaking to them in the language they would understand. But of course, he wouldn't really mean that. Yeah. I guess that's kind of the charge here. Yep. yep. Part of the issue is when you look at how the Gospels portray Jesus and, I mean, his interactions with the devil particularly, like it's clearly more than just, you know, a rhetorical device with which he engages the crowd. Yeah. You go to like Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. Like Matthew gives us this picture that Jesus was in the wilderness mm. one-on-one with the devil being tempted by the devil. You know, yep. the devil takes him up on the mountains and says, you know, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Like... That's not Jesus standing in front of the crowd and saying, oh, you know, you believe in the devil, so I'll talk about it. Talk about good and evil with you, you know? That's right. Like, the the Gospels presents Jesus' ministry as this supernatural struggle against this real force of evil. That's right. It's not just an idea. We see it it on display as Jesus battles against it. Absolutely. And, and I mean, obviously with Judas, uh, who we're going to kind of uh, come face-to-face with in in, in a couple of chapters' Mm. time, um, there there really is a supernatural battle going on as, as Satan enters into him and, you know... Uh, it's not just a, a kind of an idea that Jesus is using for a connection point. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing here is, I mean, the reason you would ask this question is because your assumption is, well, ultimately, clearly, hell is a bad thing and, like, Jesus wouldn't believe such a 
a horrible belief. We've got to find a way to explain that away. Yeah. But I mean, the question is, is it is God's justice that bad in the end? And yeah. we'll go on, you know, we've got some more questions to talk about that we later do. on as well. Yeah. And, and I think on that, probably the other thing to say is particularly about hell. I mean, Jesus is the, is the person in, in the New Testament who speaks about it more than anyone else. Mm. Um, and to be honest, what he does more often than not is he strengthens the teaching on hell rather than softens it. So one of, one of Jesus' habits is to say, you know, you've heard this said, but I tell you, you know, mm. um, Sermon on the Mount. And, and actually Jesus strengthens the teaching on hell and actually makes it far more terrifying and, and uh, th- than you would have, uh, than perhaps even culturally his listeners would have heard. So Yeah, like he's not just connecting with their yeah. cultural idiom. If he was, he wouldn't yeah, need to ramp right. it up. He's so actually much. saying, look, take it really seriously, you know, mm. don't, don't um, you know engage in sexual immorality in any sense because you're in you know uh, you, you risk being thrown into hell. You know this yeah. is not just a, a point of connection. Is this is him strengthening and saying it's it's worse than, than you might think culturally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, very good. Um, now, in your teaching on hell on on, on Sunday, you, you made the point that as we modern listeners hear ideas like hell, we, we get a bit kind of um, a bit jumpy sometimes, a bit gun shy, yeah. And um, we we think that the idea of a, of God sending people to hell that's just that feels unloving, and we often think with our feelings, don't we? Um, yeah. Because that yeah. feels unloving. Um, we, we can't think. And, and, and so you made the point. I thought it was a great great comment on Sunday that actually the opposite to love is 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 not hate, but it's um it's it's not caring. It's it's indifference. And if mm. God didn't judge and bring punishment on people that would actually be a profoundly unloving thing. Now, someone's pushed back on that and said, look, is that right? Is the opposite of love really not caring? Surely hate is a, is a more uh, exact opposite of love. Yeah, great question and something that's really good to dig into because this is a big question. This is something that really matters. Yeah. I think you've summarized well what I said, Sam, and yeah, I stand by it. If we come to this issue thinking that uh, either God is loving or he is wrathful and will bring anger and, and, and bring his anger to bear on sinners and will judge people. If we oppose those things as opposites, that's the kind of thing that I'm speaking against. Right. It's, it's not the case that love is the opposite of wrath or love is the opposite of, of God's punishment. The, the decision I'm... Sorry, the distinction I'm making is, yeah, that's not true. And rather, love is the opposite of indifference. So for God to care about sin so much that he would judge it and be angry against it, we think that's unloving, but we've got the opposites wrong. And God okay. is actually, you know, he cares. And if he yeah. didn't care, he would be unjust. You think about, you know, if you're following the news, like this, this, this stuff about William Tyrrell. I mean, what an awful situation, you know, this, this murder has happened, this, this child, this, you know, what a, a senseless, you know, mm. atrocity. Quite like, barbaric act of... Yeah. Yeah. Like, for God to, you know, if God is loving, doesn't that mean caring about that? Doesn't that mean doing something about that? For God to be unloving would just be to say... Oh well, you know that doesn't really matter that much. You know, yeah, stuff happens. Yeah, for, for the God of the universe not to bring justice, like because we can't humanly, well, maybe we will, but it doesn't look hopeful that we're going to mm. be able to bring justice in that situation. That, um, but if God, if there's no sort of cosmic recourse, but whereby God will bring justice, then it's a hopeless world at one level, and and we should despair. Yeah, but. The, the fact that God cares shows just how much he loves that he will bring justice in these areas even where we can't, which then helps you to see actually God's justice and punishment is not a, not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because it means that ultimately wrongs will be righted. Yeah. I would say like not only is 
love, not the opposite of justice. Like, I think love and justice go perfectly together. Yeah. Because if God loves, you know, lots of people, if he loves everyone and there are bad things that happen to some part of his people, that means being angry against the others. Like, if you... Justice is just kind of love on a massive scale because mm. you love those who have been wronged and that means you are angry against those who have wronged them. Mm. Justice and love go together, I think, is, is the point. Now, this question is asking, surely hate is more of an opposite of love. And I think that's worth engaging with too. Like, yes. I, I think in, in, a, in a sense, like, uh, yeah, I'm happy to agree with that as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in some sense, hate is the opposite of love too. Sure. Like, yeah. you know, in different contexts, we may be dealing with different comparisons, like, feelings and you know attitudes aren't all just on a spectrum like there's there's a lot going on here mm. it's worth us thinking about though yeah i mean what does it mean to to hate someone what does it mean for god to hate someone mm. for god to to judge sinners like is that an act of his hate you know does god hate anyone mm. i think at some level we have to say yes and that's already shocking for us to hear isn't it like we yeah. we hear that and think surely that is not possible yeah a bit, like we're going to dig into that more, but I mean, just to give you a Bible verse for it, you know, in in Malachi and then in when Romans quotes it in uh, Romans chapter nine, God says, you know, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated. Yeah. And the Bible gives us this language that God, there are, there are people whom God hates in some sense. Mm. Now, what does hate mean? Like that's the question, right? And this is where we have massive problems in our culture because we have so much kind of cultural heat around ideas like. Yeah. love and hate at the moment and these words are rapidly changing in mm. there kind of because um, because even 20 years ago hate meant something now nowadays it, to hate means to not accept someone as they present to you and make any kind of critical comment that's that's hate yeah that's right if yeah. you love me then you will just accept me. accept me in in everything mm. that i am and all of yeah. you know whatever attitudes and things yeah. i want to present to you if you are not 100 percent on board with that then you hate me yeah and anything you say disagreeing with me is an act of hate speech like yeah. we've really kind of dialed up the, yeah. the language and made hate into something i think much like our worldly category of hate is very different to what the bible is talking about mm. and we one of the things we're really at risk at is when we see things like the word hate in the bible yeah we read our culture into it and into. end up thinking wow like yeah. god's a monster if that's what he means but mm. what we think that means may be nothing at all to do with what the bible is saying it's probably true on the word love as well isn't mm. it you know our world has shifted um its meaning on love um you know uh, massively in, the, in again in a similar kind of time frame L- love used to mean a sort of sacrificial decision to do something good in, you know in the best interest of another love now just means almost kind of accepting someone for, for, for who they are um, not judging them. You know, they're all kind of... Love and hate have been tied up with this idea of acceptance mm. um, quite quite significantly, which, again, is different to how the scriptures think about them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is, is it worth us unpacking what is the scripture getting at? If it's not getting at mm. that, what does it mean to... to like, when God says, you know, I've loved Jacob, Esau, I've hated, what is it getting at? Yeah. Like, I take it it's more than just this issue of, you know, acceptance, warts and all, all that kind of thing that's going on. Yeah. Yep. I think uh, at least one thing I think it's going on is I think love and hate in in the kind of Jewish world and the idioms they use, there's this strong like um, aspect of loyalty or allegiance or um, yeah. kind of like, just, like a stance towards someone. Like I think of, mm. um, I'm trying to think of, oh, there's, a, there's a verse I just had in my mind and it's gone. Um, huh. Something to do with love and hate. Oh, um, when Jesus says, you know, you know, if you, unless you hate your mother or father, like yes. you, you don't love me, like that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think Jesus is saying, like, you know, Christians must be people who completely reject their families That's and right. despise them. Like, yeah. the, the language there, there's this kind of preference thing going on. Like, it's a strong statement. It's, it's got saying, to do with allegiance, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. 
So for, for God to say, you know, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, I don't think that means he, you know, despises Esau and like there's this yeah, like yeah. big emotional kind of thing heaped upon it. At that point, I think part of the language there is the choice that God is making. God is, has loved in the sense that he has dis- freely decided to dispose himself favorably towards Jacob, whereas he has freely dis- decided to dispose himself in kind mm. of judgment and hardening and um, he's kind of against Esau. Like I think that's part mm. of the language as well. Yeah. And that's just two instances. Like, yeah, there's a lot going on. I think, like, I think personally, I need to do more wrestling with it and come to terms with what the Bible really means with this language. But I think we definitely have to understand that it is so different to what our world means. Yeah, and that's 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 a good lesson, isn't it? To to not uh, just uh, let our terms of reference be dictated by the culture around us, but keep coming back to what is the Bible trying to say with these words. Mm. Okay, two more to go in our ten. So. If Jesus is the only way uh, to justice and to God, as you were saying on Sunday, what about those who, who've never heard Jesus' name, live in countries that don't talk about him, or live in the sort of pre-biblical times? Um, I feel like we, we, we keep getting this question. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we tackled this question last week as we wrestled with the parable of the sower. So one thing to do is go back to last week's episode and have a listen if you didn't last time. It was a great answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you get to hear Sam Russell's uh, wisdom on yeah. that. Um, <laughs> if I can just, just recap some of what Sam said, just to, again, I guess, give you the main points again. Yeah. Um, we got to understand that no one who ends up facing God's judgment will be undeserving of that. The picture the Bible paints this is that we are all sinners. We have all rejected the king. We've all fallen far short of his glory. We've all lived thanklessly. We have all turned ourselves away from him and hurt other people. You know, all those things. Like, we are all sinners. So there is no one who is out there who is this this kind of innocent, noble person who doesn't deserve judgment and is going to get smashed because they didn't deserve it. No, Mm. that's that's not the the picture the Bible paints of humanity. That's one thing. We're all sinners and deserve it ultimately anyway. Uh, the other thing we have in the Bible is the, the doctrine of, of general revelation. So mm. a passage like Romans chapter 1 talks about how God's power and divine nature has been made clear to everyone through what God has made. Yeah. And there are things that God has, has said to the whole world. So it's not like people out there who've never heard the name of Jesus have no uh, revelation from God. Everyone can, has enough to look at the world and say, yep, I know God's there and still I turn away from him and do things my own way. Yep. So there's this, there's this reality that means no one is without excuse. None of us on the day of judgment will be able to say, oh, I didn't know better. The way the world, the world has been made means that we do know. God, God has put eternity in our hearts. We have the, the ability to know that he is there, and yet we reject him. Mm. We're without excuse. Yep. But obviously the gospel is God's word to humanity as well. And, you know, the... Good news is anyone who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved, and we want the people who haven't heard that name to hear it because that is how they'll be saved. So, again, like we said last time, if this is a question that is a, is of a concern to you, in some ways it should be. Yeah, we yeah. should be concerned with those people who've never heard the name of Jesus, and we should go and tell them. So, right. support our missionaries who are doing that, and consider going yourself. And yeah, take the gospel to people who need to hear it because what could be more important than that? That's it. Very helpful. All right, last one. Um, how do we hold uh, the love of God together, which is what we've been talking about, uh, mm. with the knowledge that God has actually predestined those who are and always will be the weeds? Um, more sharply, is it or how is it loving for God to predestine some for destruction before they are even born? That is that their destiny is, is ultimately chosen for them already. Yeah, another fantastic question. Um, again, one that we wrestled with last week a bit as well. So yeah. again, I'd point you back to, yep. to hear what Sam had to say last time. Um, 
we were looking at Romans chapter 9 then and thinking about those vessels that God has made for destruction, uh, the people who he has not predestined to life and how they, you know, God demonstrates his grace to those objects of his mercy. All of that, yeah, go and check it out last week. I think there's some things we can add to that, though. Um, I think one of the questions that we've got to wrestle with as we come to the whole, whole issue is, what does it mean that God is loving? Mm. Or to put it more strongly, that God is love, because that's, that's one of the things that John says, right? Mm. I think that we have this tendency to exalt the love of God as if that was kind of the primary and most significant thing that God is and the most significant thing about God. Like, yep. You know, we can, we, I think often we have this perception, you know, sorry, this perception, um, we're kind of conditioned to think, yeah, God, you know, God is holy and God is wrathful, but above all of that, like God is love. That's like the capstone. That's mm. like the, the most important, that's the primary thing God is. And so when we come to these decisions about, you know, understanding predestination, that kind of thing, like we're looking for, well, where is God's love in this? Like that's yeah. the kind of thing we're looking for. Yep. My question would be, is that right? Is that something that is true about God, that mm. his love is more important than the other aspects of his being? And I don't think it is. Mm. I think that the picture that the Bible gives us is of a God who is love and a God who is holiness and a God who is perfect justice and righteousness. And those things are all, yeah. those things are all who God is. It's not like he is more loving than he is just. Like there are other parts of the Bible that, you know, like, yes, John says God is love, but there are also parts of the Bible. Um, Jesus became for us uh, wisdom and righteousness and holiness. Yeah. Like, yep. you know, the angels cry out in the temple in Isaiah 6, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They, they pin that up as the, the, yeah. this thing about God that the world needs to know. Like God is all of those things. Yeah. And when we divide them against each other, we risk kind of chopping God up into these bits that are somehow at war with each other. Yeah, yep. So I think when we kind of go searching for the love of God everywhere, as if that's the thing that defines who God is, yep. we, we risk, firstly, we risk kind of reshaping God in the way we think he should be, mm. which I think is different from the way he's revealed it to us in the Bible. But we also act as if like God's justice isn't good or God's mm. holiness is good. Like his love and his mercy, that's the good part. And the other stuff is somehow bad. Yep. And that I think is a, a tragic kind of, distortion of who God is yeah and I guess also tie that up with what we were saying about love earlier if we have um slightly um misguided ideas about what love like if, if we take the world's view of love means just accepting me for who I am mm. that becomes very hard to to hold like if God is love he just should accept everybody and how he's clearly not loving because he here he is judging some people and sending them to hell that's not loving well only if you run on that definition of love. Yeah. But if, God, if, if, as we were saying before, God's love is tied up with his justice, um, bringing um, you know, restitution of, of moral um, wrong, then it is loving for God mm. to bring justice and to um, bring some individuals to destruction because that is what those people deserve. Um, now, yeah. all of that is tied up in God's sovereign choice, and perhaps that is where this question is sort of... Yeah. most sharply located yeah. um, that God chooses that um, but who better to, to make those decisions than the God who the other part of his um, you know one of his other traits is his omniscience he knows mm. all and he, he's perfectly wise and good and righteous and yeah, we have to trust in our God and say yeah when we see God's justice uh, worked out on that final day we will be saying Yes, Lord, this is this is good. As is the picture in Revelation, as you see 
the assembly gathering around the land, they, they are not just celebrating his love and his mercy, but also his justice and the destruction of the wicked. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe to try and just really land the plane. Um, the question put, you know, the, the sharp version of the question is, or how is it loving for God to predestine some for destruction? Mm. Is it loving for God to predestine that? Mm. I think the answer is no and yes. Mm. So does God love everyone? Every person, you know, whether they're a believer or not, whether predestined or not. Yes, I think at some level, God loves everyone in some way. You know, um, we talk about the doctrine of common grace, that yeah. God makes the, 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 the rain to come on the righteous and the wicked. He, in some ways, he loves every person. But I don't think God loves every person in exactly the same way. Mm. Because of verses like the one I've cited before, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. Yeah. And in some sense, God hates those who are prepared as objects of destruction. Yeah. He loves them and he hates them yeah. and in different kinds of ways. And I think, I think even as God directs his, his wrath and his justice towards those objects of, of his, his wrath, I think he is loving even in that because yeah. even in those who have rejected him, who have been destined to do so, God is revealing his goodness and his justice even as he judges. And that is ultimately a good thing. And like, like, that's so hard for us to hear. Like, I yeah. find it hard to even say that. But yeah. I think that's right. That God is expressing his love and his glory and his goodness even in judgment. Mm. And when we wrestle with that, which, which I certainly do, yeah. we are, at the end of the day, we stop and say, God is God and I am not. Yeah. And he is revealing his glory because that's the thing that, that mm. matters. Yeah. And he is the one who decides how to do that. Yeah, and I think with all of that in place, we, we have to learn to rejoice in who God is as he reveals himself rather than thinking, well, I guess that's kind of what it says, but I wish it would said something different, but okay, all right, like as if God's the bad guy, but we've just got to accept him for being who he is. Actually, we want to say, no, God God is is always good and even his justice is good and his, you know, his working of things to his perfect plan is good and we, we want to celebrate that. Yeah, we should never apologise for yeah. the doctrine of hell or for who God is. Like, we, we wrestle with it like, yeah. and we should. Like, it's, yeah. it is not easy for us to fathom and to, to accept, but yeah. when we apologise for it, yeah, we say, ah, you know, I wish God was some other way than how he is, but... Yeah. If I have a problem with who God is, the problem's with me. Yeah. It's not with God. That's right. And that's a problem that I expect I will keep wrestling with through mm. our journey through this age. Yep. And one day when we see God face to face and we walk by sight and no longer by faith, I yeah. take it we'll understand just how good his justice is, even if we don't quite get it now. Mm. Very good. Jack, there's our 10 questions. Some weighty matters there. Hey? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we good will. to wrestle with you. Indeed, indeed we will. Uh, it is good to, good, good to wrestle with. And... Uh, this coming Sunday, uh, we're, we're back into Matthew. Um, you're not preaching, I'm not preaching. Uh, what's happening? So this Sunday, some of our trainees are preaching across Sunday, which is really exciting. So we've got Matt Gillespie preaching yep. at Morning Church, James Chen at Afternoon Church, Pip Witheridge at yeah, Night Church. So right. really excited. I've been working with those three guys on their talks and really excited to, to see how God's word comes to us. Yeah. On Sunday, we're looking at the end of Matthew 13. And I guess the thing we're really thinking about is the, the value of the kingdom of God. We've heard a bit about how it divides and how the word grows, but we're going to see how the kingdom of God is something that's worth more than anything else in the world. Yeah. We're going to see 
that and why that is the case. Yeah. Now, um, on the we won't be doing question time with our trainees. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean for the extras next week? Uh, we're getting close to the end of the year. We are. We we haven't really made a decision on that, have we? Well, we can make one now live on <laughs> make air. It live with, on with, air. with the team. Yeah, uh, sure. what, what do you, you want to do? do? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, let's just see. Look, <laughs> if you send in a whole stack of questions over this week, we'll, we'll think about doing an episode next week. But it'll either be that this will be if it's radio silence from here on in. Have a merry Christmas and right. uh, enjoy celebrating Christ's birthday. Uh, through and we'll see you in the new year. Otherwise, we may be back for a, for a sort of last hurrah next uh, next week. Uh, but I guess we'll just see what happens. We will see what happens. And yeah. if yeah, either way, you know, we look forward to seeing you next year and, and yep. picking up your questions again. Yeah, very good. All right, thank you, Jack. Bye for now. Bye bye.